Hello everyone, I'm Luke Dinarona, lecturer in race, ethnicity and post-colonial studies at the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre for the study of racism and racialization at UCL. And I'm delighted today to be in conversation with Les Back, someone whose work has inspired and guided me now for many years. Les is Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths, the University of London, where he's been teaching and working for a very long time, I think. I'm not sure how long, I think since the early 90s, are we? Yes, that's right, Luke. My daughter was three months old when I came back to Goldsmiths, and she's 27 now, so. <laughs> Amazing. And Les has published many important books and papers, but to name a few of those books, New Ethnicities and Urban Culture from the mid-90s, Out of Whiteness that he published with Ron Ware, The Art of Listening, one of my favourite books, Academic Diary, Migrant City, just a year or two ago, and written more widely about music, football, culture. And I'd really recommend for people who haven't read Les's work to do that now. It's some beautiful writing and really important arguments that should be shared widely. Thank you for that, Luke. I appreciate that. That means a lot. Of course. And I really wanted to speak to Les for the podcast, because as we build the centre, concerned as we are with the study of racism and racialization, and being located here in London, I couldn't think of a better person to speak with and learn from, actually, than you, Les. Les has been thinking, writing and teaching about racism and multiculture, particularly in his beloved London for many years. And so despite hailing from south of the river, I know that we at the centre are going to have a lot to gain from friendship and engagement with Les. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Looking forward to it. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about, really, is a concept that's been very helpful for me that I read first in your early work, which is the concept of the metropolitan paradox. And I wondered if maybe you could explain a bit what this concept means to you. And then perhaps the slightly harder question, how you think the contours of the metropolitan paradox are maybe different now to when you were first writing about the metropolitan paradox? Yes, I mean, it was an idea that came to me quite early on in my sort of research career. I first coined it in the book that you mentioned, New Ethnicities and Urban Culture, which was really my PhD project. And my road into academic writing and you know, I sort of chuckle to myself to say the profession, because I don't feel like I'm very professional in this world. This particular world of the university was a strange one in that, you know, I finished my undergraduate degree in 1984. It's a very, very tough time in terms of just opportunities, what to do next. Mm. I didn't think about going on and doing a PhD or even postgraduate work. I basically was scratching around trying to earn enough money to survive and live an independent life. And it was easier than I think for young people. But, you know, I found myself doing a little bit of academic teaching, mainly because of my PhD supervisor, a wonderful woman called Patricia Kaplan. But I was earning most of my money as a youth worker in youth clubs. So I was working in a historic youth club in New Cross called the Moonshot Youth Club. And another one close to Bermondsey, but right by the river, right on the river, called the Peeps Estate. These were two youth clubs that were within a mile of each other, but it was almost like two different universes, partly because of the politics and the discriminatory practices of local government housing departments in allocating properties there. So one was thought to be, when it was built in the 60s, a cut above in terms of council housing, actually, became a predominantly white working class bastion. And it was like that when I was working there. And then the other club, which was right by New Cross Station, actually, a few hundred metres from where the New Cross fire had taken place in 1981. That was the year that I came to live in New Cross. I walked past, you know, the ruin, 
the sort of burnt out scar that was the house at 439 New Cross Road where the fire had happened and 13 young black people who were more or less exactly my age were killed and a 14th died two years later. So that place was like a kind of community hub where sound system dancers played, where there was this extraordinary kind of, I think of it as a sort of renaissance of Black London at that time. It was an extraordinary time. I feel very privileged to have been part of that. So to go back to your question about the Metropolitan Paradox, you know, within sometimes 100 metres or even within a mile at a stretch, you could find both the kind of realisation of a new possibility for what London could be and what multicultural London could be. At the same time, it was physically proximate with the damage of racism, both popular and institutional. You know, a street away from where Moonshot Youth Club took place there were the famous raids around the time of the mugging um, moral panic in the 1970s. You know, stop and search was rife and just blatant. The racism of the police was just completely unselfconscious and brutal and evident. You know, I witnessed that firsthand with black friends on the street. So on the one hand, there were the places in cities like London and areas like New Cross and Deptford could be the place where a new possibility could open. And they were also the place where the enactments of racism, both popular and institutional, and the legacy of empire was being replayed. Those two things happening in exactly the same place. They were cheek by jowl, you know. And I always thought that that was something paradoxical about that. It wasn't a straightforward struggle where, you know, one set of those forces would win out. It wasn't like a contradiction. It was something else, something much more troubling and difficult to think about was how these twin forces, you know, those twin possibilities of what London and Britain could be, were locked in this paradoxical relation. And I suppose the follow-up question being how you feel that paradox feels different. I mean, this is a big question about London, I guess, how it feels different to then, because you're talking, I think, about 30 years ago. So, Yeah. yeah. What would you say some of the key differences are now? I think the characterization of London as a kind of paradoxical urban space remains true, but the nature of that paradox has shifted and has changed. You know, the big shifts, ones that you know well and are documented in your work, is the move from a moment where London is really a kind of post-colonial city. In many respects, the conduits of movement and the passages of movement, the template of that was set through the relationship between the metropolitan centre and the hinterlands of empire. So it was the citizen migrants of the Caribbean who came to this part of London and also you know, other patterns of migration that were internal to the UK. You can only make sense of that through understanding the relationship between that and the imperial past. It set the coordinates of those movements. That's completely been transformed. That relationship has been broken. That's produced all kinds of other sorts of contradictions and hypocrisies. You know, the Windrush experience and the scandal being the most extreme one. But, you know, that feeling of the breaking or the cutting of those Commonwealth ties is very palpable, I think. And London as a sort of space of difference has also been transformed. The presence and the contribution, really, of African migrant communities, largely from West Africa in this corner of London, has transformed both the sort of popular vernacular of the city and as well as added other dimensions to the sort of political alignments of urban life and the complexities of multiculturalism. So I think on the one hand, that paradox is shifting And I think one of the things I became very keenly aware of wanting to think about is how in that situation, it isn't simply that 
racism stands still either. It adapts. So the centers of power can take on a kind of multicultural gloss or rhetoric at the same time as institutionalizing hard forms of power geometries of exclusion. You know, so the other aspects of how the metropolitan paradox is different now is the way in which questions of the border and the immigration line take on a different quality. So the way in which difference is ranked and hierarchies are created. I mean, the great mm. from Franz Fanon, I think, is that, you know, racism doesn't exclude absolutely. It sifts, it orders. That was the colonial reality. And the post-colonial form of that process has some of the echoes of those alignments of power. You know, the good immigrant as opposed to the unwanted. You know, all those kinds of things, I think, are the shifting dimensions of that paradoxical combination of a different kind of future and the legacy of the past. You know, the legacy of the past, which I think the defining aspect of that is the legacy of empire and the legacy of racism as a scavenger ideology that constantly shifts, mutates and adapts to new realities. Mm, That's really helpful. And I've been thinking for a while about the relationship between the legal classification of non-members in different ways and the exclusion from political membership and cultures of racism. I suppose I was also interested because when I said beloved London, I kind of mean that you really live in this place. And I was thinking about the kind of geographies of street racism and how they've changed in some of the places that you were thinking about. I imagine they've undergone exactly with the waves of migration you described, some real changes. And I wonder how street racism in those places has transformed or has lessened or has increased. You know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. No, definitely. I mean, that's something that I really think about a lot, you know, and you know this is true already, but your listeners won't. I am I am of this place, you know. It is my project. It's been my life. It is what I do every day, you know. I feel both the investments of that and the responsibilities of that. And we can talk a little bit about that if you'd like to, because I think it comes back to, well, what is the relationship between ideas, thinking, understanding, and public engagement? Not something to put on in a promotion form, but something you do every day. I'm a sort of inveterate walker. I take people out for walks and students, but not just students, but I do it all the time. It's one of the things I really like to do is think on the move, think on your feet, because the city always challenges you to think differently as you move through it, I think, as well as at the same time an opportunity to make explicit and remarkable those things that are just ignored or passed over. I think about that a lot because of the way in which the ghost of that street racism is very much present in this landscape of New Cross, particularly, you know, so... It was a place where the National Front marched in 1977, uh, notoriously a march against muggers and mugging. You know, when the National Front, some 800 strong, paraded through Lewisham, there was a street brawl. And even amongst the leadership, it was commented upon of the National Front that the back of their movement was broken in that particular form that day. So those kinds of things can't happen in the same way that they once did. And also the kinds of brutal forms of racism that were the daily reality of my peers of colour, daily reality, harassment Mm -hmm. from racists in the community and from the police, you know. There was tremendous bravery in that generation of people, you know. It was violent, in-your-face, brutal forms of attack, physical. And the sort of span of that 30 years... And the changes that have happened through, you know, physical confrontation and basically a physical verbal presence that is insisted upon and is defiant and without any qualification. 
transforms and mutes those expressions of racism. You know, it's one of the things I thought it was really important to try and document that somehow or to give it the kind of seriousness that it deserves, the way in which racism is confronted and parodied in everyday life in a very straightforward way, actually. But does that mean racism disappears? No, it doesn't. I think racism as a form of power and a practice of power has this kind of scavenger-like quality. It moves. So it might recede from the street in its most brutal form, but it doesn't disappear. There's a piece of National Front graffiti that's just on a street. I cycle past it every day. You know, in 1977, it was painted in bold white colours, stridently, mm. to claim this place. And over that period of 30 years, that piece of graffiti has been left to fade. It's almost completely invisible now. That manifestation of racism has faded, but it doesn't mean the racism disappeared. That was part of the paradoxical, challenging reality that I was trying to get to through that idea of the metropolitan paradox. And I suppose it's with sitting with that complexity and confusion sometimes, actually thinking as you were talking about, I don't know New Cross so well, but I've been there a few times and I went there a few years ago to meet with someone who was under the threat of deportation, who was deported actually to Jamaica and who'd been here since he was four. You know, like you very much have that place and from New Cross. And I think he felt at home there. I don't think he was experiencing necessarily, certainly police harassment, but not kind of white far right racist harassment on the streets. But I was in conversation. This was around the time of the referendum with him and his friend. And his friend was saying, I'm going to vote leave. Basically because, you know, and this is a young working class black British guy kind of saying, because there's not enough jobs for me. There's not enough, you know, there's because I'm having a hard time and, you know, a kind of typical argument about migration. And then the other person who's facing deportation trying to explain that the European, that the human rights were what was giving him a shot at this appeal and all of this. So this really complicated conversation, I suppose. Yeah, that was my little journey into Newcross, but something that I think is important about the way in which some of these questions have shifted in really complex and difficult ways around the politics of race and migration. Well, you see, Luke, you know, I think if you really pay attention, if you're really listening, then you can't hide from those complexities. Now, I think it is important to think in a complex way, but to say things are complex and just say that is to say nothing. It's the nature of the complexity that I think I've always been trying to find a repertoire of ideas to name or to diagnose or to interpret. So, you know, the contingency of the insider status of the young black Londoner who's saying, well, I'm going to vote leave because, you know, I'll protect my stake, really, in this society. I think that's a kind of Fanonian echo. It's precisely the metaphorical ladder of the hierarchy of belonging. You know, I'm a little bit higher up on the ladder. I want to keep my firm footing on this and hold on tight. So, you know, that is not the product of a failure of that person or of that person being, you know, politically and ideologically uh, in the common vernacular sellout. I don't think it's just... Mm. And that's an inadequate way of understanding the structural processes through which racism works, you know. So it works in a vernacular everyday way, the conversation on the street, and it absolutely works in an institutionalised way in terms of the statuses that are conferred onto people and in a way how they're defined through the immigration bureaucracy itself. Mm, exactly. And I think really the kinds of arguments you make about the metropolitan paradox, I found them especially useful when engaging with some of the kind of sociological literature on everyday multicultural or super diversity, which try and look at what they term unquestioningly kind of diverse places as though diversity is the question rather than racism. 
But I feel like, yeah, the concept of Metropolitan Paradox really helps us look at some of this complexity and have racism front and center rather than just trying to describe, as you say, these complex kaleidoscopic configurations of difference, which some sociologists seem especially fascinated by. And you've criticized that line of inquiry really well. And so that's one of the reasons I found the Metropolitan Paradox so helpful, actually. Well, I appreciate that, Luke. You know, I hope it's helpful. That's the whole idea. I think that's why we write, not just to be helpful in a benign way, but to find ways to make sense of things that are legible to others and help them and help those who are reading. Think, yeah, that, see, that rings true to me. Actually, all this stuff about, you know, how cool diversity is, you know, what about the experience of getting a text from the home office saying, you know, do you have leave to remain, which has happened routinely as the mechanisms of immigration control have become very 21st century and, and digitized. I just think that if you're not paying attention to that too, then you're not paying attention well enough. And I was really formed in a moment where you could not but be confronted by that. You know, as I was saying to you, I walked past the house where those 13 young black kids were killed who were exactly the same. Some of them were unnervingly almost exactly the same age as me every day. You know, I constantly go back to that moment in my mind because it is the moment that changed my life in the sense that that was the moment that I realised that, you know, the racist jokes that might be told over the kitchen table at home or, you know, the comedians who were performing within a mile of where those events happened, these sort of racist routines. I mean, the Montague Arms, I remember a record being made by a comedian called Jimmy Jones, you know, who performed there every Saturday night. And they were just open racist diatribes, you know. Racism is a big joke. But, you know, as a young person in that moment and knowing people, you know, that was the other thing that I think was so important in that moment. You know, knowing somebody who knew somebody who'd lost you know, people who were 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, you couldn't but be brought into a deep, profound and life-changing confrontation with where violence of that nature can be made. And, you know, we still don't know the circumstances that led to that fire, but we know absolutely sure, without any shadow of a doubt, that in terms of the way in which the wider white society thought about those young people, those lives did not matter. Those lives were not commented upon, they were not cared for. It was a political struggle to make people care and recognise the humanity of those young people. Mm. I mean, it's been 40 years, so we're kind of reflecting on this 40 years after. And of course, it's hard not to think about the ways in which the politics of Grenfell have played out. And that kind of brings us a little bit to the thing I wanted to come to last, because it's your recent writing on hope, actually. And I kind of wanted to end on hope predictably, because <laughs> that's how you end these difficult conversations, I think. I mean, you've written a wonderful paper, which was based on your talk to the Geography Society, which is on hope. And you write that by fostering a different kind of attentiveness to the world, we find a resource in the service of hope. And you then develop this argument through two examples drawn from contemporary London life, namely the silent walks at Grenfell Tower in West London, which I know you were going to regularly in, and the particular community arts project in Bellingham, closer to home to you in South East London. Maybe you can talk a little bit about why you decided for that talk and for that paper to think and write about hope and why these two examples. Yeah, no, I'd be delighted to do that. You're going to tax me a little bit because, you know, I, I follow my curiosities. I always have, you know. I mean, they've been a good guide to me and they are often of a piece with each other. You know, there's reasons why I'm drawn to particular things. I mean, I think I've always, not self-consciously, but 
probably just in the practice of doing research and writing and scholarship, I've always felt it's important to be attentive to that which is emerging, you know, things that are not fully formed yet, or, or the counterintuitive. I found a language for it later, but I think I've been doing it all along. You know, things that are surprising, and in those surprising emergent moments, I think there are possibilities. And it's there in New Ethnicities and Urban Culture, which is, as I said, was researched in the mid-1980s and published in the mid-1990s. So I think that attention to the counterintuitive or the surprising or the things that don't fit within the kind of political certainties of any given time is something that has been like a reflex for me, or at least as something that I've found compelling. Now, at the time of the tragedy at Grenfell Tower, or the, you know, the sort of manufactured tragedy of Grenfell Tower, is exactly the same period that at Goldsmiths we had curated an exhibition of Ron Ware's photographs that documented the Black People's Day of Action, which happened three months after the fire, which is a kind of historic political demonstration, where the portraits of those 13 young Black people were carried by the mm-hmm. Almost exclusively a black demonstration, black hosted, black led. And the parallels were chilling in a way that the manufactured nature of that tragedy echoed the plight and the paradoxes of power and multiculture in contemporary London. It felt like to me the structural forces, but also the changing community dynamics and profiles, I suppose, of those people who are dependent on public housing in that in our time. So That was part of the resonance, the connection across time. And I've always thought, actually, that we have to find a language to argue. And it's something I learned from Paul Gilroy, you know, who's your colleague and my dear friend, actually. We have to find a language to not only describe what we are against, we have to try and find a language to describe what we are for, what we want to argue for and not to be always in that negation moment or reflex. I had written a book called The Art of Listening, which you kindly mentioned, which was a bit of a turning point for me. It was a kind of putting the cards on the table for me in terms of what I think is the value in what we do collectively. And that book ends with a sort of gesture towards hope, as we often need, actually. And it's a bit like our conversation today, the gesture towards hope, but hope not in a kind of unknowing or in a way that doesn't recognize the damage and the looming forces that push down or limit or contain or stifle hope, actually. So the piece is called Hope's Work. And I had for a long time been thinking about a sequel to The Art of Listening, which would be called An Ethnography of Hope. I never wrote that book. I think Obama did for me, actually. (laughs) Obama tainted hope for me, put me off course. Uh, Like many people, I was. Enchanted by the possibility of a figure like him transforming American politics, but, you know, wiser heads prevailed in that political systems don't prevail because they've got a more appealing literary figurehead. The political system prevails because of the nature and power of the alignments of the system itself. But so, yeah, it sent me off track. So writing this paper was a sort of return to some of those things. And and I had stumbled across these ideas that maybe, you know, looking for where do we look for hope? And my answer is quite simple, that, you know, we have to look for hope and be attentive to hope through training and appreciation and an openness to the world of possibilities that are emerging. 
And going to those silent walks that often began close to Grenfell Tower, circled round in that corner of West London and came back to the tower, the power of that silence was really transformative. Others have commented on it too, but I was really deeply, deeply, deeply moved by going to those events. And they did seem to me to be a kind of incredibly powerful demonstration and representation and demand for accountability through silence. And the fact that the silence of those people who assembled there stilled the city, you would feel it. It was such an unnerving experience. I know you've experienced it firsthand yourself. But, you know, as the silent demonstration walked through the city, it felt like the city was made still and made to pay attention. And you would see that in people who would stand and wait for the demonstration to pass. Buses that would stop, the traffic that would stop. It was an extraordinary thing. And in a way, it became an example of exactly the kind of empirical attention to hope that I wanted to argue for. So hope isn't guaranteed. Hope is emergent. We need to be attentive to the hopeful possibilities that are alive when people walk together silently and express a defiant pushback against the brutalities of the metropolitan paradox. You know, that is a brutally divided world, the world in which Grenfell Tower is located, you know, the streets that surround it, the huge social inequalities that are manifest there. So that's where my argument came from. And so I wanted actually to be a bit playful. You might not know this, but the Royal Geographical Society is right in the heart of London's privilege. And Grenfell Tower is just a few miles away. It might as well be in a different universe. I wanted to bring some of that experience into the room of the Royal Geographical Society. And so the other example, which was a bit more playful, which will be more obvious to you, was to bring another story from urban life southeast of the river from an extraordinary community arts project that has been developed by Phoenix Community Housing. They raised £4 million to turn a pub that was a bastion of racism into a community hub where music, teaching and performance is possible and where it provides a different kind of community resource in an area that has seen tremendous hard times. So these were two illustrations of that attentiveness to those things that are emerging, but also to think carefully and critically about both the possibilities and the limitations of those things. On that estate in Bellingham, there's a street named after Antonio Gramsci. So there is a street in southeast London called Gramsci Way, Gramsci Way SE6. If your listeners don't believe me, <laughs> just use Google Maps and you'll find your way there. <laughs> the story of that strange curiosity is told in the article. But you know, Gramsci is a famous characterization, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. It's actually a borrowed one. It's something he got from someone else. It's a citation, actually. It goes back to where you started in our conversation, the importance of paying equal attention to the damaging forces and being vigilantly critical of those, the pessimism of the intellect, because, you know, pessimistically, those forces survive, they reproduce, they change, they shift shape, they realign, they hold. At the same time, optimism of the will, which is to pay attention to the world and the remarkable things that are so often unremarked upon. The things that are counterintuitive, that in some moments and in some contexts become intuitive reflexes. They become simply the rhythm of life itself. I think that's 
such a wonderful and I'm glad we did turn to hope way to close out the conversation Les I want to thank you so much for being in conversation with me despite having read your work for many years and thought about and used it I've learned so much from our conversation and I really look forward to further engagements with the center and I'm really glad that you spoke about 40 years ago in both the fire and the black people's day of action because we will be trying to mark that so I'm well, sure you'll be along doing is really important the world is a better place for the fact that the center exists at all and that you're trying to do the work that you're doing to my mind what you're doing is part of hope's work that's what it means. That's what it is. It's undeniable. It cannot be taken away. It's done. It's achieved. And I think it's important to honour that and to appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll speak soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization or follow us on Twitter at UCL underscore SPRC. This podcast was produced by me, Kaisa Kahu, and executive produced by Professor Paul Gilroy.